Hello! Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Fantastic Fiction is a monthly speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month, hosted by Ellen Datlow and me, Matthew Kressel. We spotlight well-known and up-and-coming science fiction, fantasy, and horror authors, and admission is always free. We publish a monthly podcast and video so people who can't attend the in-person event can still enjoy the readings. If you'd like to support the series, you can donate at kgbfantasticfiction.org slash support. Anyway, on to the show. Hello. 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 Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. I'm Matt Kressel, and I co-host the series here with Ellen Datlow, and this is our second month doing it in person after an 18-month hiatus of doing it virtually, which I have to say was really great because we were able to get people from all over the globe, but it's also really great to see everyone in person. Like I'm seeing people tonight that I haven't seen in, oh, maybe two years. It is amazing. I love you guys. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on my third beverage. <laughs> Speaking of beverages, the KGB bar always, always uh, hosts us free of charge. All they ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft. Please, buy drinks and tip your bartender. He is working hard. Kelly is working hard to keep all of you hydrated. So please, buy drinks. Um, I am like just really happy to be here, honestly. Um, both of the, the readers tonight are, are uh, friend, uh, some of my good friends and great writers, and I, I know you're going to enjoy their readings this evening. Uh, so our readers tonight are C.S.E. Cooney and Robert V.S. Reddick. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, what else? Do we have any other announcements? I always feel like there's a, all these announcements, but I can't remember a single one. So I guess they're not that important. Um, all right. Oh yeah. Uh, so we're gonna. So the way it works, if you if you've forgotten, I know it's been a long time. We've all been sitting in our PJs for two years. Um, the, we have a reader that reads for the first reader will read for 20 minutes, and we take about a 10 minute break. Everyone gets a drink, and then we we have the second reader, and then. We're, this is something new. We're doing Q and A's now, so we're gonna. If you have questions that you'd like to ask the authors, you can think of them. And uh, we do uh, an audio podcast of the reading, so we're gonna try to get the questions on the microphone. So we haven't quite worked out logistics of that yet. So we may just have to repeat the questions into the mic. But uh, yeah, uh, all right. Let's get started. Our first reader is Robert V.S. Reddick. Robert is a novelist, teacher, editor, and international development consultant with 30 years' experience in the neotropics in Southeast Asia. He's the author of seven novels, including The Red Wolf Conspiracy and The Fire Sacraments Epic Fantasy Trilogy. His most recent novel, Sidewinders, was first published in July. He won the New Millennium Writings Award and was a finalist for the Thomas Dunn Novel Award. He lives with his partner, Dr. Kirian Asher, in Western Massachusetts. Here's Robert. And Robert also has books for sale. Books for sale. 
Hello there. Oh, that's the lamp. Hello there. That's <laughs> the lamp. Yeah. I'm really, really, really happy to be here. It's it's a little bewildering to be doing anything in real life in the flesh and instead of just you know a projection of myself. Um, and it's my first time ever stepping into the KGB. I'm just very, very happy and really honored to be here reading with Claire. And just, it's, I'm happy. You know, we've, we've all been walking a really hard road and uh, just gotta keep walking, don't we? Um, so, I am two books into this crazy, long, anti-war, war story, epic fantasy trilogy called The Fire Sacraments. And I have these friends, Kondri and Mektu Hinjeman, who, I, I don't know if you've got any friends like this, the kind that, um, you know, you hear a knock on the door and you open the door and there's this, this person who's, you're, you're definitely close to, you definitely feel kind of intimate with but you're not actually sure you want to invite them in, but they don't stop and wait there. You like while you're still thinking about whether to make an excuse, like I'm really busy now or something, they're already in the door. <laughs> they're into your kitchen, they're opening the cabinets and looking for snacks and so on. That's kind of what happened with Condry and Mektu Hingeman, the, the Hingeman brothers. I had all these ideas, I, you know, I basically knew that I wanted to write an epic fantasy that um, stuck with poor people. And yeah, they fit the bill, um, but they, they muscled in and sort of took over, and, and I've become really close to them. You know, we, we are at this point, as I'm writing book three in the series, book two, Sidewinders, came out in July, but I'm, so I'm writing book three, and there's really no point at all in trying to bring you up to speed on about... Uh, 1,400 pages of story at this point. And that's always you know, the frustrating thing about uh, when you're in the middle of an epic fantasy and somebody says, well, how about you read? Um, you can either just give context that goes on and on and on and on, everybody's eyes are glazing over, or you can lose people, um, or you just read from the beginning of a story. And so that's what I tend to do. And last time I was in New York, exactly two years ago at the New York Review of Science Fiction readings, I read from the beginning of Sidewinders and it was completely raw and I was terrified like now and it went okay so I thought I'd just do that again and and it seemed to be faded even more because this particular um, or most of what I'm going to read it takes place in a well not quite a bar but a boarding house uh, so a public house and so I'm just reading from the very very beginning of book three which is called Siege and really all you need to know is these brothers I mentioned they are peasant soldiers drafted into a horrible religious war they never wanted any part of. They got on the wrong side of just about everybody and particularly their own people's sort of um, liberation hero slash prophet slash queen. And to not be summarily executed, they, they fled into the desert. There's a desert in this world that's uh, about twice the width of the Sahara. And they're they're running on foot and uh, they also, they come into possession, and I did write this long before COVID came on the scene, but they're, they're in the possession of a letter which if it's ever deciphered may cure a plague that's been hobbling and hurting the world for 300 years. And uh, for, for 
the, for all of the first two books, the saga of not just dying in this desert has been sort of the, the background danger. They have now, at this point, walked 97% of the way across this desert. Their, their uh, destination is a city called Kazralis, and I promise you there are very few made-up names. You have to keep track of your... This city called Kazralis, which is like the last little cooling ember of an empire that once um, dominated the whole of this, of this continent of Urath. And it's never been conquered. It's 3,000 years old. Um, its uh, traditions, its science, its knowledge, its universities, its libraries, none of them were ever burned. And they believe that if they can get the letter in the walls of Kazralis, maybe it can be interpreted and maybe this, this, um, this terrible burden of the plague can come to an end. But there's plot upon plot upon plot, and people don't want this to happen. Um, so all along for the first two books, they've been hunted by uh, death squads from their own people's messiah. And, um, and uh, her servants, which include a very small, uh, like a little white demon who uh, looks like a young girl. So I'm trying to think. Those are about the only references that you really need to know. Um, but along the way, you know, they have allies, they have enemi enemies, and when people come to realize that they are carrying this unbelievably precious letter with them that could end the plague, some people try to help them, and uh, one of them is a um, is a sort of a sort of a guerrilla general who's been in the shadows fighting for his people's liberation for um, 40 years. And he sends nine of his best soldiers to be their bodyguards as they walk across the desert. And at this point, as I said, you know, they, they're almost there. They haven't quite made it to the city of Kasralis um, uh, as, as the previous book closes. And so, so we have these, um, these nine hardened battle-weary, always poor, always on the edge, always sort of underground soldiers who've been taking care of the brothers forever. And right at the end of the last book, um, well, the brothers kind of pull a dirty trick and, and ditch everyone. But uh, among the nine soldiers, there's a, there's a character who's been there from the beginning who's never had a chance to have her own voice. And um, her name is Talupeke. Uh, she's a child soldier, was sort of forced into all this fighting very, very young. And she's always been there. She's always intrigued me, and I've never, um, I've never kind of given her the time I wanted to. So I s decided I would start this book off uh, from her point of view, and um, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to read you a little bit of from Talupeki. Before I get there, there's a there's a, about a half a page um, preface, because um, so this third final final book is called Sieged, and you can imagine what happens to the poor city of Kazralis with a title like that. But um, so there's just like this half a page that starts off uh, the book, and it's from somebody we haven't identified yet who's um, writing a, a travel guide. And I, I, if my editor permits me, I'm, the, the subtitle of this book is going to be A Traveler's Guide to the Doomed Republic. Ah. Uh, so Siege or A Traveler's Guide to the Doomed Republic preface. Here we go. Listen, reader, I have come to propose an armistice. You who hold this book are a mystery to me. I who scribble the nights away beneath a yellow taper am a mystery to you. What is to be done? 
In my youth, the midnight ferry thumped and thundered across a black, heaving bay, and from my frosted window I watched the lanterns on boats I could not see, until the ferry crossing in the opposite direction loomed sudden from the darkness, and the horns blasted like the groans of titan lizards about to clash, and for an instant a spray-slicked window glowed with a face turned to mine, eyes locked through sheets of glass and twenty yards of storm, and perhaps there was time for a smile or a lifted eyebrow, and the boats plowed on. Such are we. The gulf between us is greater still, however, for I am denied even that storm glance, that splinter of certainty. You live, you eat and breathe and sleep and dream of happiness, and sometimes your dreams are bound in books. I am dead and my travels forgotten, my family sundered, my causes moot, my passions dissolved into ether, my books gnawed by worms and rodents, my diction antiquated, my sentences overlong. But together we can defy infinity. I will tell you of the siege as though over coffee, as though to a friend close enough to bear my eccentricities. I shall not lie, I shall not sanitize. And you, if you walk with me, shall hear of the doom that came before Kasralis and the breaking and remaking of the world. For I knew them all, you see, the mad prophet and her venomous offspring, the tortured general marching on those he did not wish to fight, the brilliant young chancellor whose people plugged their ears to her warnings, the inventor, the doctor, the child soldier, the ghost, the spy who pounced on this land of Urath after a secret journey from the north, and of course the brothers Hingeman, those artists of catastrophe, those peasants who confounded kings. Let us go and find them. Nothing save my candle is burning at the moment, but that, that is mere good luck. It's never safe to leave those two unattended. Okay, so that's the preface. And you see there's a little, uh, little reference to um, a child soldier there, and now this, um, now we're, for the first time in uh, three books, we get to spend some time with the child soldier. And so, um, so this little section is called From the Autobiography of Talupeke Rolokichu Uluk Alamad Ukitri, or Tal for short. <laughs> and here she goes. And um, you would know this probably, even from like, you know, the dust jacket or whatever, but she's 17 at the time of writing. So I said yes. That's what you say when the tricky bastards stomp all over your no. And of course that's what my mind was screaming, no, no, hell no, I will never. But I said yes, and I meant yes, and uncle can take his wondering out loud if my word is any good and hide it way up his... And I should have told, should have told you one other thing. <laughs> so of the nine soldiers I mentioned, so she's one obviously, and so is her uncle, and so is her grandmother. Um, and. I, Typographically here, she tends to like get really nervous and interrupt herself and I and like break off what she's saying and I'll just try to convey that when I'm reading by awkward pauses. <laughs> okay. um, so uh, an uncle can take his wondering out loud if my word is any good and hide it way up is anyway, what about her word is my question. You were there, uncle, you heard what she promised. Gran sitting there gasping and weak and that spear arm of hers that could skewer a boar at 50 feet just an old woman's now and her skin dull and eyes shrunk to gray puddles saying do it granddaughter do it and I will keep fighting each day you write in that notebook is a day I will bite down on this weariness and struggle to live 
which is to say blackmail. My own grand is not above it. And Uncle Stilts the smuggled weasel sits back crossing his arms. Shake on it, he says. This at the big common table in the boarding house, and Uncle and Prince Naraba and old Chindalan and the soldiers and even the boy who wipes the tables are watching me, waiting for my yes. But Gran, she won't shake hands. She won't settle for winning if she can skin you like a hare. <laughs> three pages by breakfast, she says. Three more before you sleep. That's a lot of fucking pages, I say, shrill, like I'm panicked. And Uncle says he knows I'm literat literate, schooled with words and such because after daddy drank poison he paid the tutors himself you've been plotting like criminals is what I tell them, they laugh the whole room laughs, it's one big sick laughing mouth I'm not laughing or smiling, I say you're both fucking nuts six pages that's not human, I'll lose them they'll, they'll blow away in the wind then uncle takes something out from under the table and wipes the breadcrumbs and date pits to the floor and sets the something down gentle as a sartaf's jewels. It's a little bundle in white canvas. And when I unfold it, there's a gleam of steel and I think dagger, but it's not. It's a pen. I'm, I'm disappointed, of course, but pick it up all the same. Not like that, snaps my uncle. Ah, girl, that's a tool for writing, not shoveling food into your mouth. He slides it between my fingers the way the tutors did when I was little. And it's true, the hand remembers, just like a knife, the pen feels like it belongs there. Now I notice it's fucking beautiful. Black wood that's also red somehow, and a band of silver around the cap. Uncle's explaining how he bought it from a man in the gardens and how I have to coax it gently across the page and how if you twist just so, you'll draw ink up into a chamber made from the hollow leg bone of a quail. A quail? A kind of bird, says old Chindalin. Of course I know what a quail is. I'm not that kind of stupid. I also know this is serious, that I have to stop these people now. I can't write, I say, like I'm sorry. That's a bald fib, Talupeke, says my gran. You wrote a card for my 60th birthday. <laughs> I did not. I can't write. You wrote some filthy words on a cold window, says old Chindalin. <laughs> And you wrote my death letter out for me, sister, says a cheeky private, grinning like an ape. Remember my, 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 my just-in-case letter, what they should tell my dad and my sweetheart back home if I'm dead? Gran looks at him and nods. Thank you, Private Bonry. Bonry's so proud he could split down the middle. I flash my teeth at him. He should know better. When did I ever like to lose? Your letter's rubbish, I tell him. He frowns at me, thinking hard. You mean it says something else? I mean, it's chicken scratch, fool. I just did that to make you feel good. Like I said, I can't write. Uncle's laughing. I could kick him. You wrote the general when you were six years old, girl, he says. You told him you weren't afraid to sleep at night because he was out in the hard places fighting for our people. You said one day you'd pick up a sword and join him, but you could already sew patches and that you'd mend his shirts. Our whole battalion heard that letter reduced grown men to tears. Well, now I'm plain pissed furious, standing up from the table shouting, you had no right. The general read it out himself, says Graham, and your words inspired them, you see. I didn't write that shit. Uncle's smirking. Then who did? The tutors. Your tutors, because I let them feel me up. Feel you up? Yeah. Who, that deaf old schoolmistress? Exactly. And, and the chemist with the little dog who lifted his legs on... They were sick. 
They took advantage. They said you'd hate me if I talked. Well, Gran and Uncle are hammer-smacked. They look at each other and I can almost hear their thoughts. Maybe that's when it started. Tal's craziness, her cussing, her cutting, fighting, screaming, rage. Oh my, but they're ready to shit themselves. Feel her up. Why didn't we ask her? Why didn't we suspect? So I almost win the day, but this is me, of course, so at the last possible moment I fuck it right up. I'm looking pleased with myself, and they notice, and for a few blinks they're not old anymore. I see the lions in them I used to fear and love and imitate. That's when it started, if you care to know, when I was six or eight years old and saw them as they truly were, fanged and stronged and quiet and quiet in the high grass and all that power I wanted for myself. They get the truth out of me together. We shake hands, Gran and I. All the same, I can't write. You can see that for yourself. No, I can't fucking write. I'm a soldier, killer, knife thrower, shit for brains. And also, fuck, they said no curse words in this notebook, and I said yes to that too. That's fine. I have practiced not cursing. If I cursed on patrol, Captain Utarif would come down on me like a, like a savage godstand, like a wolf. All right, let's play school then. Here are ten facts about me, or at least two. Or just one to start out with. Are you up to this mission, soldier, or will you fail us again like you fail us again and your gran as well? Can we trust you to count up to one? I'm missing war, and how's that for crazy? You think a girl who started fighting before she even bled? No, no, cut that out. What I mean to say is if you're just 13 and have the bad luck to be there, get chosen for the cause, flung into war like a bone in the soup kettle... I should use more commas. I'll fill this notebook like I promised, but they're not reading a word. I'll show them the pages upside down. Write what you're living and feeling. Uncle says that's how to start. You think that makes it easy? What do you know, Uncle? You sit scribbling for weeks. Living, feeling. Fine, it's rubbish, but you win. I'm living in this boarding house full of flies and mice and cheeky bastards in a beautiful damned oasis called the Font of Luprise. We're trapped here, not by troops or padlocks, but by heat. Nine full days march from here to the mountains at the desert's edge. And if we went right now today, then with the God's own luck, some of us would make it to the mountains alive. Some, but not my grandmother. Some, but not our sickly prince. Some, but not the elders of the caravan, the men and women who brewed the tea each morning and tended the camels each night. They're called Mistajavs. They finally told us. Just scabby to, peasants to look at, but they're so much weirder underneath. They eat mice. They talk to their pillows. They think toads are their ancestors and call down prayers to a toad spirit at the bottom of every well. Uncle says to treat each one of them like a king or queen because... If I live to be a hundred and visit every land at Urath, I'll never see their like again. A clan with no homeland, not even one they've forgotten. A clan so private they won't tell their names unless you marry their brother or one of them falls dead at your feet. A clan so quiet nobody conquered it, nobody changed it, nobody noticed it dying off the face of the earth. They know their elders wouldn't make it out of the desert this time of year, and so if the caravan master says, pack up, we're marching, I hope the Mastajovs would refuse. But my guess is they'd go with us anyway, not complaining. And after two or three scalding days, the elders would begin to smile their apologies and step out of everyone's way and sit down quietly to die. 
So maybe we leave the elders here. Maybe we leave my grandmother and Uncle Stilts to care for her. Uncle is younger and would probably live if we set out tomorrow, but each day the trap's teeth are closing, the summer's begun, and soon the teeth will snap together and will be stuck, nailed down in this pretty cage until autumn when the heat starts to lift. The Font of Laprise. I remember a book with pictures of this place, the lemon groves and the fountains and the girls in red sarongs, also daddy smiling his wicked smile like it was a place not to talk about with children. Was it a real place? Who cared? I would never travel, never see lands this side of the desert, any more than I'd walk the twilight meadow on the mountain of the gods under stars that never set. But miracles happen. We stepped into that desert on one side of Uroth and walked forever and then forever again, and there were storms and wasps and lumps of burning iron that fell from the clouds, and my comrades died, and the Mustachevs died, and our camels died, and still no one was even whispering halfway. And we walked on and fought those painted lunatics called the Slaughterhouse Clowns, and my captain died so close his blood reached me on the wind. And we walked on another two or three eternities, and one day Mr. Ulrin, the caravan master, pointing and shouting from a ridgetop, Lupris, Lupris! He's a foul man with piggy eyes, Mr. Ulrin. He's sitting here across the table sucking a mango pit and watching me write, trying not to stare because he fears me. He's not entirely a fool. All I have to do is glance up to scare him off to his room. No, Alrin's not all bad, though. He leads the caravan now since the night of the jellyfish massacre, and I will say he kept everyone walking despite our acid-burned bodies and broken hearts. That day on the ridgetop, he made men wild with his talk. Lupris and its pleasures, wine and lamb shanks and aromatic oils and marble baths and willing whores. All that is true. Lupris is beautiful like the dream of the goddess of music, but it's still an oasis and we're still nine days from the desert's edge. Today a parrot flew over me in the blazing sun and I heard a bubbly hiss and fuck, but its droppings were there sizzling like bacon in the street. So much for living. I think I'll skip the feeling part because did you know there are 19 kinds of scorpion in, in this desert? I saw them dried and pinned on this fucker's wall. <laughs> Never mind that. I was going to tell you about the bloodstains on this notebook. I can't decide if I'm to blame. There's this huge jackass, the Ursid somebody's uh, bodyguard, who comes in here for palm wine and watches us while he drinks. I never had any problems with him whatsoever. I thought his muscles were impressive for a cheap-ass hired sword. Maybe he tells good jokes or stories, I thought. So today, I nodded to him just a soldier's friendly hello. He was surprised, and then he gave me a funny smile. My comrades stopped chewing, looked from me to him to me again, and jumped up quick with their plates and fled the table, all but Gran and Uncle who had their backs to the big man and were arguing about the war. So up he slouches close to our table until he's right by Gran's elbow. I'm looking around, lost. I still have no idea in the world. Then, still staring at me, he drops the smile and does something crude and obvious with his tongue. Captain Utarif would have called that an unfortunate decision. And so it was, because my uncle and grand chose that moment to look up and notice him. Naturally, their eyes snap right back to me, and I just grin and start to loosen up my shoulders. Steady, steady, uncle warns, and I stand up, but all the big fool sees is a girl who finds him hilarious and won't fuck in this century. So he curls his lips, sneering, and asks, which one of them jilted you, eh? Jilted? I say, because I'm lost again. Which one of them Hingeman brothers? 
I saw how the light went out of your sassy little eyes when they ran off. Which one were you sweet on? Did he do much for you? Uh, Sir, calls our poor addict prince from another table, you are about to experience the most extraordinary discomfiture. (laughs) Take some well-meant advice and... Bet it was the short one, says the fool. Go on, tell. Did he promise you eternal love if only you'd let him taste before you buy? And then, then, when he tasted good and proper... He and his brother swan off to whoosh. Grand smacked his arm down on the table and pinned it there with a short knife through his sleeve. And the fool reaches for the knife with his free hand. Whoosh! That's one pinned down, too, with her spare knife. Both arms crossed over the table and his skin not even nicked. You parthen hag, he manages to shout before Grand catches a fistful of his greasy hair and breaks his nose against the table. (laughs) Ha-ha! I'm up and dancing. This is the best thing since the circus. And then my uncle gives me a look that says, hush. Grant's pressed his elbow sharp and deep into the big man's throat, and he's gone still all the way to his fingertips because he can feel what one more push from her would mean. She says, My granddaughter has had no opportunity to learn non-lethal methods of combat, but in the matter of knives, she has surpassed her instructor. I love her formal voice. It could freeze a man's balls so far up inside him he'd never find him again. And have you guessed the instructor was her? We send him off with a warning and a clean kerchief from the prince. I'm still dizzy with joy. I'm going to write this, I shout. I'm going to write down exactly what just... My uncle's arms around my grandmother. She waves a hand and kind of snarls. But when she coughs, she sprays her plate in the salt cellar and this notebook with blood. I suppose I'm feeling angry and sad. One night on my first deployment, my sergeant warned me. He said... You know, the problem is not that we're trapped here and not even that the money's gone and there's talk of moving into the stalls with our camels. What do I care? It's been one crowded sty or another since I was 10 years old. No, that's not why I'm angry. It's because the big fool had a point. You left us here, Condry. Snuck off with your brother or two thieves in the night. You two who I was ordered to die protecting if necessary. And do I have to tell you I took that order to heart? And it kind of hurts like a battle wound. The camel drivers still aren't ready to believe it. They walk up and stare at us like it's a language problem or we're playing a trick. Brother's gone? Yes, brother's gone. Kondri and Mektu scurried off like two brother rats. Now you may say it was a mercy there's this little white demon who was coming for you and you only ran to draw her off, but that doesn't excuse the sneaking, does it? Why not say something, bastard? Tell me that. All those looks, all those little chats in the desert, the time we fought the vultures, the time we were drugged and woke up all tangled together, the time we survived the salt blindness, the time you were sick to dying and I fed dates into your mouth. You think I'm just some wounded bitch who fights and curses, but that's not true. I listened to every word you spoke. Your eyes said we were brother and sister. Your voice said I'm different, girl. Your way of never once trying to touch me said, Talupeke, why don't you trust in my friendship? And then you're gone like the others without even a note. I won't curse you in writing. I won't insult you like you've insulted me. I will find you, though, and you'll explain or you'll be sorry. Let me repeat, Kandri Hinjuman, I do not like to lose. Thank you.
take a break, um, have a drink, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Hello. Hello. We're going to start the second half. <laughs> Welcome back to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB, which is always the third Wednesday of every month, um, in person now, hopefully in perpetuity. <coughs> our next wonderful reader, oh, before I announce our next wonderful reader, we have a few people coming up in the next few months. Um, summer maybe are iffy, but we're getting, we're getting the schedule set up. <coughs> December 15th, we have David Leo Rice and N.K. Jemison. Woo! Yeah. January 19th, we have P.J. Manny and T.K. February 16th, we have Tochi Anyabuchi. I'm sorry, Bu oh shoot. It's Anyabuchi, I remember, I checked it out, okay. Mercurio and David Rivera. <laughs> And uh, I don't think we, have, we don't have March. We have a few coming up. We have Victor Laval in a few months, and I forget who else coming. But anyway, our next guest tonight is C.S.E. Cooney, who Woo! lives in Queens, Woo! New York. Yeah. And is dressed to the nines, by the way. She won the World Fantasy Award for her collection Bone Swans in 2016, and her new collection, Dark Breakers comes out from Mythic Delirium in February 2022. And it's a gorgeous, you can look at the books, you can't take them home, but you can look at them, they're beautiful. Um, her forthcoming novel, Saint Death's Daughter, will be out in Solaris in April 2022. Currently, she and her husband, author Carlos Hernandez, are co-developing a TTRPG, which is a game. I had to find, I had to look it up. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I'm old. Negocios <laughs> Infernales. I was just going to say, and about Inquisition and aliens called Negocios Infernales, which I wasn't able to pronounce, which is why I wanted to say it. Anyway, please welcome Claire Cooney. I don't have books to sell because I only have advanced reading copies, though I will give one away by the end of the night. Um, but I do have delicious and nutritious, if you like fiber, uh, postcards. And on the back are very cunning little uh, QR codes that lead you directly to pre-order pages, including our TTRPG, Negocios and Finales. It's just sort of like the Kickstarter page Kickstarter that's like back this project. You don't have to pay any money. It'll just tell you when it goes up and you will definitely want it because it is awesome. Um, Dark Breakers is a collection of novellas and stories that all take place in the same world as Desdemona and the Deep, which yes. was my Tor.com novella edited by Ellen Datlow. And I'm not gonna read too much from it. I'll just read a couple paragraphs as a teaser. Uh, a couple paragraphs that Desdemona happens to be in. She's a very tertiary character. She's not m a main character in this. But I thought, for anybody who enjoyed that, they might like this. Then I'll read a whole chapter from St. Death's Daughter. Gideon's cousin looked tousled and half asleep when the housekeeper showed him into the breakfast parlor at Breaker House. The pale green and gold of the walls threw their radiance upon her who needed none. Desdemona Mannering was a son unto herself, that morning she wore a tea gown of peach silk damask with sweeping, back with sweeping back pleats and a ruff of ivory lace. Her black hair spilled across her shoulders as carelessly as ink, giving her a siren's aspect. She blinked at Gideon like a gentry cat, too regal and important to be bothered by any such frivolous thing as remembering some mere mortal's name, whether or not they were family. She settled on a surprised, why, cousin, 
for lack of anything more specific. Gideon rolled his eyes, impatient of her skylarking. Desdemonster. She sipped espresso from her demitasse. To what do I owe this honor? Gideon collapsed into one of the mahogany chairs opposite her. It's not summer anymore. Why are you in your summer cottage? I thought it would be deserted at this time of year, a high, lonely place like this with wind blowing in from the sea. I'm hiding out, she confessed, sipping delicately. Her eyes crinkled at the corners. She had decided to confide in him, or pretend to. Boy troubles. Gideon leaned back, crossing his arms and ankles. Chaz Malister? Desdemona laughed and let her head fall against the posy-broidered cushion of her chair. Those aren't boy troubles. Those are Chaz troubles. They're perennial. I don't let them bother me. No, this was more of an instance of one boyfriend finding out about another boyfriend and weeping all over my bosom. Tenors, you know. The only thing Chaz does to my boyfriends is steal them. He discovers their particular genius, builds it up like a cathedral, and sends his boys out into the world as powerful, confident men to be famous and insufferable, thereby rendering them useless to me. I like the delicate ones who need me. Oh, she laughed like expensive crystal. Truth be told, I like them all. Teddy bears, wounded comedians, self-effacing ladies in tweed with their pop bottle glasses. And best of the lot, a crackerjack reporter in a checkered coat. <laughs> Dark Breakers. February 2022. Pre-order. You can even get this cunning little card with a beautiful illustration by Brett Massey. But the true heft of 2022 that I'm contributing to literary society is this thing I've been working on for 13 years. And it's coming out. Um, what you have to know, Saint Death's Daughter. Miscellaneous Stones is the main character. We'll call her Lainey. It's easier. Easier on the tongue. She's born into a family, the Stoneses, uh, who are mostly assassins and sometimes necromancers. Uh, a necromancer is very rare, and you can tell they're a necromancer under very specific circumstances. From a very young age, they're allergic to violence. So, say, if your father has beheaded someone in your general vicinity, you might start projectile vomiting, hives, rashes, that sort of thing. And, and you might end up uh, having echo wounds, which is when somebody hurts somebody violently in your vicinity, you have a, a wound very much like the hurt that's inflicted. So a necromancer rarely survives to adulthood, but when one does, they're so allergic to violence that they can raise the dead. Um, miscellaneous, Lainey Stones has grown into her power, and uh, many things have happened by this point in the book, but the blood royal, the blood royal Eralira, the ruler of the realm, has been murdered, people suspect. And she has been asked by the blood royal's second-born child, there's the, the blood prince who's the heir, the second-born is kind of a, a priest, you know, like there's the royalty, then there's the clergy, if there were a third child military, right? So the second-born fire priest, they have asked her to come and... Um, raise their mother or part of her to tell, tell them what happened the night of her death. Uh, and Lainey has been through a lot in the last several days, um, but she is like, okay, I'll, I'll come do this for you. I guess one piece of vocabulary, if you don't get it, is ectenica. And ectenica is what happens when dead matter and a necromancer's living blood meets and become the third state, not life or death, but undeath. So Ectenica is the state of undeath. You might hear that. Chapter 23, Era Liera's Last Advice. 
So they're, they're in a glass garden with a glass casket. Aralera is going to go um, be incinerated this evening. Her corpse will be incinerated in the triple flame. And then, at last, at last, up went that stifling glass lid, light as a bubble, etched with frosted flowers, up and off the body, granting Laney access and communion. And then she and Canon Lear were setting the lid down upon the moss gently, gently, and Laney was stepping in close. She placed her left hand upon Araliera's shoulder, something deep, swimmingly, sweepingly deep at the bottom of her belly, relaxed. Her left hand tingled. She heard the ch deep chiming of bones. The first whiff of citrus teased her nostrils. Three days ago, just three days, Laney marveled. When I was first preparing for this interrogation, I thought we would begin by discovering what happened to the blood royal on the night of her death. We will have her tell her story plainly, without interruption, then ask whatever clarifying questions we deem necessary. And then she gestured to Canon Lear with her free hand. If and when you are satisfied, I will step away and you may have a word with her alone. For a moment, Canon Lear's bloodshot eyes grew very large and round. Though Laney had known them since their mutual childhood, Canon Lear had never seemed anything but completely self-possessed to her their well-educated, sophisticated gravitas defying their years at every age. But now, looking terribly young, terribly lost, they whispered, what shall I say to her? Um, Laney wondered what she would have wanted from Natty or Abba had she been strong enough at age 15 to stabilize their actenica. Had she bound their substance fast to their accident and raised them up and sat them down for an actual honest-to-death God conversation for once in their lives? After lives. Too late for her now, but not for Canon Lear. You could ask her blessing, she suggested. Perhaps, risking a grin, beg that she might pass on the whereabouts of any secret caches of treasure she might happen to have left, leaving, left lying about. Canon Lear's mouth twitched. Or perhaps, Laney added more somberly, she has some final advice for you and your brother, who must now carry on in her wake. The twitch blossomed into a rueful dimple, her not inconsiderable wake. She and they regarded each other, each nodding like two wise flowers in the rain. Then Canon Lear stepped back from the beer and said, Thank you, Miss Stones, I, I am ready. So Laney left Canon Lear to their own internal preparations and gazed down instead at Araliera's accident, sinking her whole consciousness into it. Memories of her time with the blood royal rose to the fore. Laney could not regret never again encountering Araliera's toothy, untrustworthy smile, or avoiding those avid, calculating eyes, or hearing that trained orator's voice lying to her, lying to everyone about everything all the time, but the longer Laney looked at her, the more kindly she felt. And this she knew was dangerous, for Laney did not want to love Araliera, even now, and yet she could not help it. Canon Lear cleared their throats. Laney brought her attention back up out of the corpse. Yes? Uh, if possible, Miss Stones, I, I would wish to arrange this conversation in such a way that Araliera's body or any conspicuous part of it does not disintegrate in a suspicious manner. If my armor, 
The Epar Karana discovers that their royal sibling has deliquesced into a pile of post-Ectenica sludge. They grimaced. I fear that rumors of necromancy will inevitably follow. And since I have promised to keep your secret safe... No, no, I see. Good points. Narrow-eyed, clinical, Lainey ducked her head to study the corpse more closely. She sucked her lower lip into her mouth, bit down, released, which gave her an idea. Her tongue, she decided. Memory seated in the tongue will abet ectanical communication anyway. Plus it's hidden. She absently patted her trouser pockets for her syringe kit, then picked up her jacket and turned out every nook and cranny of it, only to realize that what she'd sought she'd unhappily left back at Queen Anna's Isle's tomb. She sighed. Oh well, it's not necessary. It's cleaner and more efficient, but any sharp edge will do. Silently, Ken and Lear offered up their misericord. Footnote 17. <laughs> the fire priests of Sapacor always carried this weapon with them as part of their vestments, though over the centuries its purpose had become more traditional than functional. It used to be that every fire priest was also a bright knight, a warrior who fought to drive the worship of the triple flame into every unbeliever's heart, often forcibly. These days, fire priests were better known for their hedonism and peace-loving ways. And bright knights, at least in Lyriat, were an elite force of priestly bodyguards for the highest-ranking clergy and their noble allies. The blade was slender as an ice pick, with a decorative twist at the base like a small cyclone, a grip of carved ivory, and a creamy cloud-covered pearl in the pommel. Laney lost no time in nicking the tip of her middle finger and bending over Araliera. A slight distressed sound across from her brought her glance up again, Ken and Lear's face looked sick beneath the remnants of their paint. No, 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 you mustn't worry, Laney assured them quickly. You, you keep your misery cord quite keen. I hardly felt a thing. This, it's nothing. You've seen me bleed before most copiously. Echo wounds always produce more juice than these incidental prickles. Though, ha, they do heal faster. Remember when you loaned me your robe for my nosebleed? I still keep a scrap of that silk by me in a small box of my favorite things. She watched with fascination as a look of delight and warmth returned to Canon Lear's face. Miss Stones, they said, I am moved. Laney smiled at the tone of that Miss Stones. She suspected Canon Lear of a gallant attempt at flirtation, even though with the greatest will in the world, neither of them was any good at flirting. <laughs> Still, it spiked the smell of citrus in the air as well as her confidence, and Laney thought she'd attempt a flirt herself. Well... It was only a very little scrap, Canon Lear. That's all that was left after my very big nosebleed. The biggest, they murmured. By now, the middle finger of her left hand was singing, ready, 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 and Laney became all business. Now, if you will, Canon Lear, with all due reverence, open your mother's mouth for me? Thank you. All right, now you might want to look away while I... Yes, that's it. And now I'll just sing her a refrain of the Maranathasath anthem, shall I? Goody Graves taught it to me. An old Quidoni spell song, the first ever uttered. A cry to Doedina against death itself. Of course, I don't know if that's all true, but the song's origin is certainly of unfathomable antiquity. I learned its companion song first, though like you it was born second, the Lanisthanisar. The undreaming, also called the great lullaby, for it can sing the undead to sleep again. But the Maranathasath anthem, which I will now attempt, is called the dream calling, for it summons the dead back to their dream of life, or so Goody says. 
All I know is the melody focuses my death magic and adds stability and durability to, durability to my ectenica. And not to mention, you know, oomph. Lainey realized she was babbling, decided not to anymore, and bent to examine the blood spatter on Araliera's tongue for ectenical change. Perhaps the slightest shimmering? It, it's such a slippery little tune, she muttered, more to herself than to Canon Lear, who bent close to hear her. Like trying to isolate your earliest memory when you're not sure it even happened. But there's no one to corroborate it for you, so you can never be sure. Or like describing a dream. It's never quite the same in your mouth as it was in your mind. Even Goody only recalls the tunes and tatters. I will say that singing the melodies, or rather remembering them, is effortless on a surge day, but oh dear, in ordinary time, let me tell you. But no matter, humming a few notes for you, I mean for Era Liera, is my greatest honor. She calmed her nervous babble, channeled it into silence, and the moment she did so, the ectenica caught. Cold star, snow ember, moon frost, kindled in the mouth of the dead blood royal of Liriat. The sight of it cooled Laney's fevered thoughts, focused her mind. She breathed out. Where is breath? In the stillness, what is stillness? So thane. In the stillness at the end of her breath, just prior to her next inhalation, Laney tuned into the twittering of her living bones where the music lived. Ah, the tail of a trill. She hummed it back, the first four notes then the next four, then the next, 12 notes in all, barely a phrase. But as surely as she was a stones, that phrase was anthem, was welcome, was wake. Lady doggedly kept the hum alive on her lips like a bumblebee caught buzzingly between her teeth. Her deep voice sang counter to it, a sound only the dead could hear. Both her voices hummed, her whole body humming along, substance and accident together, until the blood throbbed in her newly cut finger. Throbbed, too, where it flecked Araliera's mouth, painted her cold tongue. The tongue was now crawling with low blue light, that same spectral glow that illuminated Goody's eyes. It quickened an animated luster that took hold of its accidental fuel until it had lashed the tongue entirely, and then it became the tongue. The ectenica writhed, worm-like, irate in Araliera's mouth, fast-flopping in every direction at once, scrabbling and squirming against the corpse's stiff cheeks like feet kicking at a confining blanket. Laney sucked in air like a swimmer at the plunge, then stuffed her left hand all the way into Araliera's mouth. It stretched for her like obedient putty. She caught the wriggling tongue in her fist, stilled its struggles, and began to pull, stretched it, worked it like luminous blue caramel, shaped it. Soon, the thing she held no longer resembled tongue. It hadn't been a tongue since the moment Laney's blood met with the dead matter. No more flesh but ectenica, at once material and ethereal, dead matter and living blood combining into the third state undeath. Ectenica swam up Laney's fingers, twisted around her knuckles, her wrists, cold electric cobwebs, popping and crackling in their eagerness to communicate. Laney smiled, just as eager, ecstatic to oblige. Araliera Brackenwild, we wish to talk to you. We have questions. Araliera Brackenwild. Carefully, millimeter by millimeter, she released the ectenica back between Araliera's lips, 
L's and L's of it, a long ribbon of blue light unspooling from her left hand to coil tamely and snugly between the floor of Araliera's mouth and her hard palate, like a snake in a shaft of sunlight. When the Actenica was all in place, Laney asked it, Are you ready to talk, Araliera Brackenwild? I am ready to talk, the Actenica replied. Laney glanced up at Canon Lear, whose hands had tightened on the wooden frame of the beer. Their face was stoic, but their body was visibly shaking from the beaded burls of black hair on their head to the gilded sandals on their feet. But they gave a curt nod, so she began, Tell us about the night you died. The Actenica's report was pretty much what Laney had been expecting. Araliera had been reading in bed. A feeling, something like sleep, a lot more like drowning, overcame her. She could not move. Breathing was difficult. A sweet molasses stickiness between her and her next heartbeat. Two birds flew through the window. A third bird, large and black with red markings, perched on the sill outside. The two birds inside the room vanished. In their place, two women stood over Araliera's bed. Both of them bore the wizard marks of Rook. The tall one, Araliera knew, for they had met before. She would have spoken her name aloud, Branfiacna, but at no time was released from that sensation of slow, squeezing sleep. Branfiacna bent over her bed, whispered, Two and twenty, and blew an iridescent dust from off the palm of her hand into Araliera's face. What followed were hours of agony, or perhaps minutes, the Actenica corrected itself, and then nothing. And now this. Laney stood back. Are you satisfied? She asked, no longer addressing the corpse. Canon Lear nodded without speaking. Do you have any more questions? They shook their head. She hesitated then asked, would you, would you like a private word with her? Hesitation, a quick jerky nod. Laney stepped away from the beer. I'll let you say your goodbyes then. The Glaston garden was not large, but Canon Lear's voice dropped to a whisper as they knelt beside their mother's bier, putting their head next to the corpses and greeting it by name. The Actenica returned the greeting. Lear. Laney politely plugged her ears with her index fingers, but even that, though it stopped her from accidentally hearing Canon Lear's questions, did not mute Araliera's responses. Despite her best intentions, Laney could hear every word uttered by the undead. It was a sound she received in her bones, not her ears. Thankfully, Araliera's responses to her secondborn were short and soothing. Yes, she loved them. Yes, she was proud of them. Yes, they had her blessing. She was confident they were clever and wily, wise and deep, would do their hard work remorselessly and well. Times boded to be dark and difficult for Lyriat, the Actenica predicted, but it knew that Lyr would keep the good of the realm foremost in their mind, as Araliera had not. After a quarter hour of this, Canon Lear bowed their head, said something that Laney could not make out, thank you perhaps, or goodbye, and laid a kiss upon Araliera's naked knuckles. Laney started making her way back from the fountain at that point, but Canon Lear was not quite done. They looked up suddenly, their troubled gaze meeting Laney's. She replied with a tentative smile and jerked her chin at Araliera. This called their attention back to the Actenica that had been Araliera's tongue, which was beginning to crumble at the edges. Laney could almost taste the char. She flashed a five-finger warning. Canon Lear smiled crookedly, lifted a single finger in response, and turned to their mother's corpse. This time they angled their shoulders so that Laney could not neither see their face nor read their lips, even if she'd wanted to. 
Bending low over Eraliera's body, they whispered something just above its mouth before turning their ear toward its lips to hear the Ectenica's whispered response. Whatever the question and its answer, they wanted to keep it as private, as secret as possible. But the Ectenica's response rang throughout Laney's whole body like the horns that heralded a high holy fire feast. Marry her. I have this copy to give away. But without Googling the answer, you have to tell me your best guess, or if you know, even more power to you, the definition of the word, which is an actual word, and Amy, you were there, so you can't I, guess. I read one of books, so I'm not gonna okay. The word necropants. Neither you, Andrew, you were there too. Necropants. You get pants made out of human skin. And when you put a coin in the dead ball sack, it will produce more money for you, apparently, if the donor was voluntary. Um, I love necropants. It's a footnote in the book. Would you like a copy of this book? It's the advanced reading copy, so there's copy edit still. Robert, your reading was amazing too. So we're gonna do something a little a little new. This is only the second month we're doing it. We're gonna do a QA. Woo! So does anyone have questions about anything at all? The nature of the universe, reality. Yes. Uh, questions, questions. Anybody? Anybody? How does anyone come to know the definition of necropancy? <laughs> okay. The question is, how does anyone come to know the definition of necropancy? It's simply a thing that one knows. <laughs> it's a thing that one knows. <laughs> that makes as much sense as anything. Right? Questions? Yes? Um, I wonder if you can get it started if Claire and Robert can ask each other one question. So... Uh, the question is, can Claire and Robert ask each other questions or one question? Um, we just want to make sure we get it on the mic. You're welcome to come up here and ask each other. But just we want to make sure we record it so that uh, it's on the podcast. Yeah, come on up. I mean, the trouble is just asking one question, <laughs> choosing just one, but I guess... Claire, I'd like to ask when you, when and how you came to imagine making death something that could be full of so much love, if that makes sense. Having just finished reading your wonderful, wonderful novel. So. I have a friend, uh, Sharon Shin, she writes fantasy as well, and she says, she told me once, like, every writer has their thing they write about, and she's like, I read about, like, lost children a lot, and, um, and uh, she's romantic, too, so she's kind of, like, waywards and straight. She's saying, you, Cooney, you write about um, death and what comes after. Like, that's my thing, apparently. And I was like, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> just, and then I was like, I'm going to write something that has nothing to do, oh. And then like every time I'm like, no, shit, you could, you could, anyway, I, um, I did want, I did want something a little, 
not obvious, I guess. We've had a lot of the other kind of necromancer, so it's time to put flowers in their hair and make them joyful and mischievous and wry, I suppose. It's time, and that's, you know, it's bound to happen sooner or later. It came from, the idea came from my friend took me out shooting in the desert once, more than 13 years ago. She's like, you're a writer, you have to know how to shoot a gun. And I was like, okay. So we go and shoot like some, you know, tires in the desert. And I was like, I was supposed to have these noise canceling earphones on and whether or not they were working, I don't even know, but it was still too loud. So even before I pulled the trigger, the anticipation of the noise, like I'd break out in a cold sweat, I'd start shaking, even not killing anything. And I was like, whoa, that would be very inconvenient for the child of a family of assassins. <laughs> and I, you know, I tried to write it as a sci-fi short story in Phyllis Eisenstein's class, you know, um, and the butler was like a robot named Graves. There's still a, a housekeeper who's an undead housekeeper named Goody Graves, but it's a, it was like totally has changed since then. That's my answer. Robert, I, mean, I just want to think of a good one, and I, like part of me, I've read both your first books, and are you, I don't want to ask any, I don't want to stress you out about the third one, stress but. Stressing. Stressing. <laughs> but also I want to know about like, are you excited about what comes after? Like, do you, do, do you have to fight ideas bubbling against the third of a trilogy of a major work, like thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of words, or are you, like, does it keep you going? Does it feed your battery? Um, so I really, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a, a, an honest way to answer. I mean, it's, I'm very, very, very determined to finish the story in book three because, you know, I had a first series that was supposed to be this little kind of a breather be before another project and I was going to write like a 250 page book and be done and it turned out to be like, 1900 pages of story and people asking for a book five eventually um, uh, so it's going to absolutely end and I have been um, from an early age dreaming about writing a really good siege story and you know uh, so I'm setting myself this attempt to write the siege story to end all siege stories you know at least to you know, set the bar high I guess but yeah, I'm very, very, I'm energized. Um, I got really tired by the, I, I was exhausted by book two. And so I've uh, let myself kind of move in slowly with book three, and I've written like seven beginnings, and you know, what I read tonight was just one of them. <laughs> so so um, yeah, it, I, I hope that after, you know, maybe I've spent like 30% of the complete effort of the book on the first 50 pages. I hope that's true so that I'll actually pick up speed now. Maybe that answers your question. Woo! I have a question for both of you. So both of you have written, obviously, works that reference other works you've written, right? So, so in the same world, so to speak. You can't hear me? Can you hear me now? So I'm saying, both of you have written works that take place in previous worlds that you've written. Um, as those worlds expand, do you find it difficult to keep track of all the 
events and happenstance and proper nouns <laughs> <laughs> that happen during during that. Uh, as as someone who is writing something long myself, I find that I have to have uh, copious notes to to keep track of all that stuff. So I'm just curious for, for if you, each of you yeah, can answer that. Yeah. Go ahead. I can answer that because I have a really simple answer, and it's kind of scary. But no, I have no <laughs> trouble at all. Ask me what I was doing two hours ago, and you'll get a blank look. <laughs> and that is a problem, you know, interfacing with reality. So no, it, it's it's clearly a like big chunk of the brain is just around for that because it doesn't seem to fade very much. Whereas you know, normal life is a lot harder. That's so cool. Yeah. That, that's that's true. <laughs> So for like uh, the Dark Breakers, Desdemona in the Deep was the third movement I wrote, but it was so, I wrote it to stand alone and I'm like, all right, so what can go? You know, what of the world can go and what can stay so that it can be its own thing? And so when I went back and revised the first two movements, I wanted to make them stand up to Desdemona. So I tried to make them stand alone. So mostly the references to the other stories are more like jokes. I mean, they... But I do have to like reread, and I have some notes. Some I can keep in my head, but some of them are just more like, eh, I'm gonna refer to the events of this story that I wrote 10 years ago as though it had been made into a movie in the 100 years since then. And so what people know about that story is the movie that was made, not necessarily the events themselves, which I wrote. So it's like there's a way to like, oh, it's a piece of theater now. Oh, it's an opera. Oh, it's an epic poem. You know, uh, so there's like a way to sort of jokingly do it. Plus. When you're dealing, at least with Desdemona and Dark Breakers, uh, there's the matter of who's the narrator, are they trustworthy, were they enchanted or drunk at the time, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's, that's easy. With, with Saint Death's Daughter, it's the first of a trilogy, and there are some jokes for somebody who's been reading my work from the beginning. The only person I think is like my mother and maybe Rich Horton would get some of those jokes because they're like one-liners in an 800-page book. But um, I think the real challenge with this one will be if it get, comes to a book two and three, which I'm planning but I'm not contracting for, will be the challenge of keeping all of the world building in my head. I have a, like a Miscellaneous Stones Trilogy notes uh, folder, but it is it is it's like every single draft's worth of notes, so some are not, they don't even count anymore. The calendar particularly is gonna be really tricky, but I, I enjoy it. I don't know, like, I think I like that challenge, but it's not easy. So, I kind of love the idea of, of, you know, the idea that when someone's reiterating a story, it's not exactly the, the story that you heard, it's a little bit different and maybe someone's telling it differently or remembering it differently. I think that's closer to reality, at least for me. Uh, any, any questions from the audience? Any more? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I apologize. I missed your name. I came in a little late. Claire. Claire. Claire Cooney, CSC Cooney. Uh, could, you, could you talk a little bit more about your tabletop RPG? Oh, yeah, thank you. So the, the question <laughs> is to, for Claire to talk more about her tabletop RPG. I'll keep it brief. I'm just going to re reiterate it for the 
The tabletop RPG is called Negocios Infernales. Um, it is a storytelling, a collaborative storytelling game that my husband Carlos and I have been designing together for the past two years. It's sort of like an alternate world Spain of Queen Isabella, um, but right before their, their, their version of the Inquisition, aliens are like, oh no you don't, and intervene, and they, they offer a bargain with with their queen, Reina Resoluta, the queen, the resolute queen. They're like, look, we'll give you, un we'll, we, we want to like trade you, we want you to be part of the cosmic consciousness. Um, we'll do anything to prevent this, this terrible inquisition that's about to happen. And the queen is like, oh, are you devils? And they're like, no, we're, we're your benefactors. And they're like, will you, will you give us uncanny powers in exchange for our immortal souls? And the aliens are like, Sure, close enough. We'll work with your metaphor. Um, so it's a kind of a game of, of narrative irony wherein the players have perfect information, but the characters don't. The characters think they've sold their immortal souls to become wizards. And the aliens are just like, dudes, we just want you to join the cosmic consciousness and not kill each other. Um, so it takes you through character creation, world building. There's seven um, bespoke module plots that are different genres, like mystery, um, gothic, uh, kind of enchanted isle, Alice in Wonderland-y, uh, kaiju. So there's like that, and w instead of uh, dice, there's a bespoke deck. We've um, created 70 cards, like a, almost like an oracle deck, um, seven suits. They're very kind of weird and spooky, and they always work, and it's weirdly eerie, even though we made it all up. We're like, why does that work? We don't know. Um, so it's very exciting. It's being published by Outland Entertainment. It will kickstart sometime next year. Uh, we're s s like stupid excited about it. And uh, I encourage you to pick this up, and you'll get more information with a QR code on the back. Anyone, anyone else, any questions? Yes, Amy. See, your description of that race is another question for me, Claire, because now what I'm wondering is if there is no Inquisition, then maybe the Jews don't get kicked out of Spain. How do you account for the equivalent of that in your game? So Amy asks, person, if there's no Inquisition and the Jews don't get kicked out of Spain, how do you account for that? Cool. <laughs> All right, let's do it. This has an answer, sort of. Because we've had playtesters like Sam Schreiber and Danielle Shaped Object have been like playtesters and um, Sam Schreiber particularly when he was creating his wizard, created his wizard to be part of these people who had been about to be um, kicked out of Spain or like the Espada which is the equivalent and so his wizard was actively subverting like using his magic against the queen in secret. And so like you suddenly get a lot of power from a cosmic force, you don't necessarily have to kowtow anymore to the person who was about to slaughter your people. So that's been really interesting to like kind of, we've not play tested with everybody or like the 10,000 people we hope will play test or, or play it eventually, but I'm hoping they'll build many kinds of narratives that will be uh, vastly different and interesting, but um, but that's like, I hope that that's what happens. Thank you for that. Any more questions? Any more questions? I have a question um, for both. Yeah, Carlos, go ahead. Yeah, so my question is, for each writer, what is a gift that you wrote in the book for yourself? Okay, Carlos asks, what is the gift in your book that you wrote for yourself? Let's go, uh, Robert. Yeah. Well, Robert. You come up here so we can get you on the mic. You can do it. 
That's a really hard question. A gift that I wrote for myself. I mean, honestly, I feel like when I decided to make time in my life, you know, big, big chunk of time in my life, to tell stories, I was, I was giving myself a gift then, you know, um, and I mean, th there are Easter eggs in there that only like the four or five people in the entire world would ever, ever get, like the names of dogs that are the same names of dogs <laughs> that I had when I was a little kid or something like that. I don't know if that quite captures what you mean, but um, it, it may not be a direct answer to your question, but it certainly, um, I think I hear in the, sort of the spirit of your question that it's intensely important to me that I always feel it as a very, very personal thing. You know, you probably relate, Claire, right? That there's, if, you know, you want to reach lots and lots and lots of people, but the lovely thing about fiction is the more it, it matters to you in some sort of idiosyncratic, complex, private way, I think the better chance you have of making it universal, which is wonderful, strange, counterintuitive alchemy in a way. So, so all of it for me, it, you know, I, I, I know, you know, Toni Morrison said that line I always botch, but she basically said I, I had to write Beloved to write the book I couldn't find out there that I had to read. And there's always that feeling in there for me that that's part of what's going on, so that it's, you know, it, it's the thing I do each morning that I'm never regretting doing. So it's always, it's always a gift to myself, I guess. And that's all. Okay, okay, there's a scene. I, I really like the quiet scenes that aren't action-packed or even plot-bearing, which mostly are the scenes that get cut out, right? But I wish they didn't have to. But there's a scene I was like, I have to keep it one way or another, where there's a, there, this group of women friends. Um, Lainey's obviously about to like get into some shenanigans with her lover for the first time, and they're all like, prophylactics. Let's talk prophylactics in fantasy fiction. So a lot of research went into like oiled paper and silk and like, you know, guts and things like that. And I was like, there just have to be this conversation about quote bonnets and veils that is just like totally honest and does it's not necessary, but I wanted it in there. You know, like no magical preventative, but something you have to think about as a female protagonist in a fantasy novel. I kept that for myself. <laughs> Okay, just real quick, what should we look for in stuff that's coming out from both both of you? Dark Breakers and Saint Death's Daughter. Dark Breakers, Dark Breakers and Saint Death's Daughter and Robert. Coming out well, like a year and a half, two years from now, book three siege. All right. Book three well, siege. An anthology yet to be named by from Julie Day. Julie C. Day. Oh, Julie awesome. Day. Yes. Great, great editor, great writer. Yes. So uh, I think that's it for tonight. So thank you so much for joining us for our second in person fantastic fiction since, you know, we, we went on a hiatus. Uh, this was really, really fun. I hope you'll join us uh, next month for uh, David Leo Rice and N.K. Jemison. So, yes, please join us. Uh, Thank you to Claire, thank you to Robert, thank you to all of you, thank you to the bartender, thank you to the KGB bar. Woo!
Come back next week. We'll see you. We'll see you soon. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB Reading Series. Check out our website at kgbfantasticfiction.org and click on support if you'd like to help keep the series going. Anyway, that's our show. Thanks for listening and see you next month.